The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all in your little box today. Yes. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, guys. So we're hearing rumblings, and, and I guess this is bound to happen as things sort of start to uh, take off with the, the rumors of a vaccine slowly arriving here, uh, that interest rates are going to start to tick up. Are, are we going to see that? Is it just mortgage rates? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's kind of funny enough, as you said, Scott, they actually have gone up. First time, by the way, since January 2020, they started to rise. Now, you've got to remember... It was supposed to be a temporary drop in interest rates when the pandemic hit back in March. And uh, maybe temporary has started to run out because some of the banks have raised their five-year rates slightly by, you know, 0.3%. But, uh, you know, if for those that are looking or if their mortgage is renewing in the next few, week, uh, few months, rather, you can lock up your mortgage ahead of time. And therefore, you get the best rate in those, say, 120 days before your renewal date is one option. And so if you can get 1.7% and lock up for five years, uh, you know, there's a good chance they may not be there by the time your actual renewal date comes. So don't wait till the, you know, three months out, wait, wait till the day before you to renew your mortgage. Get it done way ahead. Here's a great opportunity. So that's the first thing I would definitely recommend. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's it was, like I said, it's a great benefit. There, we've never seen rates this low at 1.7 for five years before. So, uh, and, oh, yeah, the other part is, if you have, if, even if your mortgage is coming due, say, a year from now, and you had a five-year mortgage, you can blend your rate. So you'd have four years at the new rate and one year at your rate, and you can, say, go down from, I say, a 3% mortgage down to maybe a 2% mortgage, depending on the rates you can get. So, and that doesn't cost you anything to blend your rate. You're not canceling your contract. You're simply adding the new contract to it. And the banks love this, by the way, or in any institution, because you're, you're guaranteed to deal with them for another five years. Well, this is it. I think most people have been um, riding the uh, a lot of times, but this the variable rate mortgage, and uh, and we've sort of been in this constant sense that interest rates would never go up. And you and I, I think, have been talking about interest rates going up <laughs> for the last twenty years. Yeah. And uh, but I, so I think that um, you know everybody obviously who has a mortgage, they're in that uh, phase where they're building equity in their home, etc that um, it's an important component of their financial plan, and we part's part of what we call our cash flow management element of someone's financial plan. And so what a great time to review that, look at what your strategy is for paying it down, and then also whether it's time to lock in for with a better rate or for a longer term. So that actually leads us into what my topic was going to be, which is that uh, I wanted to talk about the fixed income teeter-totter. And fixed income is something that um, just to sort of Put a framework around what is fixed income. When you think about your portfolio, your RSP portfolio or your non-registered portfolio, you're, you sort of build a portfolio with the different building blocks. And those blocks in general are your cash, your stocks, 
and bonds. And I'm just saying bonds because that's a simple term that people are familiar with, kind of know what that means. But bonds fall into this category called fixed income. So in our world, when Don and I are building a portfolio, we talk about equities, meaning stocks, fixed income, meaning bonds, and it's a few other examples, which I'll talk about. And then you would have maybe some cash as well. <clears throat> so one of the things that fixed income is the issue with fixed income, uh, and there's good news and bad news. The, 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 the good news is that typically fixed income tends to go in the opposite direction of stocks. So when you're building that portfolio, you want to reduce the volatility of your of your investments and sort of offset that sort of downward slope of stocks and the volatility of stocks with the more stable fixed income area. And, uh, and bonds is often a big component of that. So the thing about bonds is that they will react to changes in interest rates. And if we're talking about interest rates going up, then the, or there is a big impact on what your fixed income bond component of your portfolio is going to do. And one of the big measurements that you want to consider is what's called duration. And duration refers to the, the length of time that is your fixed income or your bonds are going to be before they mature. So you can have short duration, medium duration, and long-term durations uh, stretching. You know, you can have as short as one year for a bond, like a three-year, five-year, 10-year, up to 20-year bonds, etc. So when interest rates change, uh, and if you own a bond fund, uh, a bond mutual fund, or even a bond ETF, uh, and let's say the duration, the measurement of that fund is five years. If interest rates move up 1%, and we're going to talk a little bit about what I call the teeter-totter effect in a second, but if interest rates move up 1%, the unit price, the price per unit of that bond fund would drop by about 5%. So what's 1% that was the increase times the duration of five years gets you your 5% decline in the value of that unit price. So that can be a fair amount, that can be a fair impact in terms of the value of your portfolio. And if you imagine if you had half of your money in bonds or fixed income and half your money in stocks, you're now talking about half your portfolio dropping 5% in that sort of duration of a five-year bond fund. So duration, if it's shorter or longer, will magnify the impact of interest rate changes on the bond prices. And if you, now conversely, if you owned an individual bond, as opposed to a bond fund. Now, fewer and fewer people do this because you have to have typically a lot of money to be able to buy an individual bond. But uh, if you own an individual bond, you hold it to maturity, you will get you will be redeemed at par, so you won't see that fluctuation as long as you hold it. But in between the time, you know, from now until it matures, it can still fluctuate like we're talking about. So most people own bond funds inside their portfolio. And um, they're typically either managed, meaning you're paying someone to make decisions, should they extend the duration, should they shorten the duration, uh, or you might own a, a bond ETF, exchange-traded fund. And a bond ETF, um, most of them are what we call a passive-type investment, so you have a bundle of, of different types of bonds in there, but nobody's actively changing them. They're basically mirroring an index that you'd be following. Now, there are managed ETFs as well. So I think the, the caution right now is that it would be prudent to review to determine, do I have a passive bond portfolio or do I have a, a managed bond portfolio in my fixed income element of my portfolio? 
So now I want you to imagine like a teeter-totter for a second. And I, it was funny as I was thinking about this, because when you, when you're, when you took your kids to the playground and you were going to jump on the teeter-totter together as an adult, one thing was the problem was, is that if you sat on the one end and your other kid and your child sat on the other end, nothing's moving. <laughs> they can't move the teeter-totter. So typically you'd have to move closer to the middle, that fulcrum of the teeter-totter to be able to let the child actually play with the teeter-totter with you. And so if you imagine that, that scenario where you've got one, that sort of, uh, it's sort of like a skewed teeter-totter where you've got a little bit on one side and a lot on the other side. So that little bit on the one side is interest rates and it can go up or down. And then that way out at the other end is the duration that is. So a young, a young child out at the other end, a lightweight, that's like a long duration bond and it can dramatically fluctuate up and down. If you sort of have a, a mid, a mid teenager somewhere halfway along the fulcrum there. And then if you had somebody that's similar, like a one year bond right close to the fulcrum. So 1% swing uh, up in interest rates, you can see that that's you going up on your end. The other side is going to go way down. The further out you are from that fulcrum, the more impact it has. So just looking at a five-year duration bond, as I said, a 1% change in interest rates means about a 5% drop. But if there was a 3% increase in interest rates, that would be a 15% decline in the value of your fixed income. So what other factors affect your fixed income component of your portfolio and bonds in general? Well, inflation expectations. The higher inflation is going to be, and we've all, we've all seen increases in inflation in our, uh, around our lifestyle right now, whether it's your renovations at home, whether it's um, lumber, materials, uh, and different products. They're all been going up in cost. Uh, supply and demand of bonds, and the uh, quality of bonds. Are they government bonds, corporate bonds, can be AAA, B, or even junk bonds as well. So what should we do next? What's the next sort of step in this whole process? Well, take a look at your portfolio and take and see how much do you have in fixed income holdings. Now, you might see something like a balanced uh, investment in your uh, on your statement. A balanced would typically be like 60% equities and 40% fixed income. So that has fixed income in it. And um, so how much fixed income do you have in your portfolio? Is it being actively managed or passively managed? And what is the duration of the bonds and the fixed income component as well? And then finally, you want to think about diversifying that fixed income component of your portfolio as well. And in, essentially, there's probably six main fixed income components that you can invest in. You can invest in short, medium, and long-term bonds. So there's three right there. You can invest in corporate bonds. These are cor bonds issued by corporations. You can invest in high-yield bonds, which, they, which tend to be, what they call them sort of junk bonds, but higher-paying uh, bonds, but more volatility. And you can also invest in mortgages as well. And every year, those six will, will sort of rotate in terms of which one is best. And it's very difficult to determine which one is going to be the best one next year. So often an approach is just simply spread your fixed income across those six different elements. You'd have 16.67% in each area. And then uh, simply reallocate that fixed income as on the anniversary each year to make sure that you're continuing to stay diversified. So... You know, if interest rates are coming to a little rise going forward, pay attention to your fixed income component of your portfolio. 
just get a better understanding, maybe have a review with your advisor and make sure that, uh, that you understand what's going to happen. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now. Leave a message, 905-529-7165. They'll return your call. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. All right, uh, just finished up with uh, RSP season, but is this always the route you should take? Is, is, is an RSP something you should just do? You know what? Uh, that's a great question, Scott. RSPs uh, is almost like we do this every year. It, it becomes a habit to a certain extent that people should just feel they always should. And they, don't, they see that notice of assessment, and it says, I have this much RSP room, and they feel like if they didn't use it all, they wasted it. And to a certain extent, I would agree with them in, in a large part. Uh, unfortunately, the time to had putting that money into the RSPs may have been a lot many years beforehand when you possibly couldn't afford it. Maybe you're raising kids, et cetera, daycare costs, mortgage payments, what have you. And what happens is quite often later in your life, when you're retirement, people are saying, well, I got all this RSP room. I should really put it down. So I had a, a couple of um, people were referred to me and for argument's sake, let's just use one of them. And and they were, you know, they're going to their bank, and they were. I talked to them, and they were suggesting that they should put, because they hadn't used up all their RSP room, fifty thousand dollars into an RSP. Now these are teachers, so just to give you an idea, they, you know, most teachers are making about a hundred to one hundred five thousand a year if they've been, you know, right at the end of their, you know, career. That's usually the max, where they max out. So I. You know, I asked this, does it make sense? Because you have to look at tax brackets. So I asked this, the person giving the advice, the bank advisor, does that person have a CFP? I know we've talked about that a uh, lot over the years. Does a, you know, a certified financial planning designation, that is the true designation of a financial planner. They didn't know. They never asked the question. Quite often they have a nice label, uh, whatever it might be, bank advisor. It, it certainly sounds like they are there to give advice, but are they really qualified? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But these are the questions you should definitely ask. That would be my first go-to. Are you a CFP? If it's no, I would just turn around right after that. There would be a no option for me if I was looking and, I, and if I wasn't dealing with an advisor at this stage. Uh, secondly, just because you're a CFP doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the best job possible because I, you know, it depends on the circumstances. Are you just walking in? asking this person some questions, do they really know your overall situation? You know, as a, as a CFP, and Andy and I have been forever, <laughs> probably 30-some-odd years for both of us, um, you know, you can't give advice unless you know the whole situation. You have to know everything in terms of cash flow, their assets, their debts, their, their pension income going forward, um, potential inheritance, um, anything, you know. So, do they really know the situation? Because it's very difficult to give, give advice. Did they discuss tax rates? And that is the real crux when you're, when you're putting money into an RSP. 
how much money would you save by putting money into an RSP? Well, that's all good, but also, how much money are you going to pay when you're going to pull the money out of the RSP? And also, did they mention about old age security clawback? And the reason I bring that up, because it's about an $80,000, where every dollar you make after that, you lose 15 cents of old age security. So it's very important to have a really good understanding of does it make sense to put money into an RSP? Because quite often people say, oh, wow, I put 50000 in. I'm going to get you know, 35% of that back. So call it $16,000 back. That's great. I saved $16,000. No, you deferred $16,000 in tax. That's not a tax savings. You have to pay tax on it sometime. And so this is a, so what I've done here is just give an example. So let's say you have this $50,000. $50, and basically, at that tax rate, you're going to save 30%. It's going to save you $15,000 in tax. Well, you're, as a teacher, you're going to make, after this, because this is a retirement year, you're going to make about $65,000 a year until you get to age 65. And then there's, because you get a bridge until that time, it's basically you get, uh, once your Canada Pension Plan kicks in, it offsets this bridge, so your income stays the same after 65. Um, but you do still get your old age security. So after 65, in this particular case, they'd make about $72,000 a year. So very good income and well-deserved. They've been putting money away for a lot of years. They've been taking 12% of their paycheck from day one and putting it into a pension plan. So I, you know, great for the teachers. They've uh, basically sacrificed their lifestyle for their whole career, and now they have this excellent pension. So good for them. But going back to the RSP, they have this 50000 Let's say they invested that because, unfortunately, in this case, they're 61 years old. They only have 10 years till they're 71, and they have to start drawing the money out. So you put 50000 in, and it would grow to 81000 by the time they're 71 years old. Not bad at all. Now, mind you, if they didn't, put it into an RSP, they still have the 50000 and it would also have grown to 81000 at 5%. But the difference is, you get this $15,000 tax refund. And that's the kicker. What are you going to do with that 15000 Now, if you simply you know, blow it, that doesn't add any value. If you pay down debt, that's a great thing. That adds value. But let's say you invest that also at, 15, at 5%. So that $15,000 is now invested into a non-registered, and so it's not in an RSP, it's not in a, it could be into a TFSA perhaps, but let's just say it goes into a non-registered investment, earning 5%. And, it's, and let's go with it as earning capital gains also, so that it's growing uh, very tax efficiently. Well, I took a look at age 71 and say, okay, now you have to take an income. So you, the income actually starts the year you turn 72, and the minimum that you would have to take out of that $50,000 that grew to 81000 So now you have to move that into a RIF, a Registered Retirement Income Fund. So that RSP goes into a RIF, and it has to pay you $4,260 that year, of which you have no choice but to pay. And again, this, the, you're in this, the tax bracket, 29.65%. You paid uh, 30% tax, call it. So you end up clearing $2,982. Now, the good news is, is that 15000 that you invested, the tax savings, would have grown to $24,000. Now, 
And that's like that's free money because you weren't going to have that fifteen thousand dollars had you not put the money into an RSP. Well, let's say you want an income from that also, and at five percent, you'd get twelve hundred dollars a year, hundred a month. But you do have to pay a little bit of tax on that, and most of it is principal. Okay, you've got to remember fifteen thousand dollars of that was principal. Nine thousand dollars is growth, and with capital gains, you only pay tax on the on the gain. So it, only, it works out that you're in a 6%. You only pay 6% tax on that when you would take that money out. And so out of that $1,200, you get to keep $1,128. Not bad at all. Well, the bottom line is between the two of them, you would get after tax, which is really what matters, $4,110 a year just from that $50,000 investment and investing the tax savings. Pretty good. Well, what if you simply kept the money in a non-registered investment earning 5%? And again, it's capital gains. So it's growing, you're not, it's tax preferred, very similar to how you invested the tax refund. It would have grown also to 81000 The difference is you would only have received $3,807 a year. So there's a difference of $303 a year in how much you're going to get basically for the rest of your life because you're going to whittle down the riff, and you're going to keep taking out all the growth. And let's say it only grows at 5% for life. So there's a $303 tax um, income difference. And say, well, you know what? Just based on that, putting the money in the RSP is better. But I find that's very short-sighted because, you know, that's all great. But in RSPs, don't get me wrong, had this person been 20 years younger and even in a, and going to be in the same tax bracket when they retire – there's a lot of time to defer tax. So that tax refund could have been growing for a long time. In this case, because they're near retirement, it only grew for 10 years. Well, the problem is, is let's say if that person died at that age, okay? They died at age 71. Well, they saved at 30% tax, and now they're going to have $81,000 added to their income at death. So now, let's say it's at the end of the year, they have their normal pensions, which add up to 72000 plus this 81000 and so they're going to have an income of $153,000 in the year of death. Well, you're going to pay a whole lot more tax on that, and so you're basically going to pay about 40% tax. You're in a 43% tax bracket, but some of it's in a lower bracket, so I just averaged out the tax brackets. And so your RIF, you're going to end up paying $32,400 in tax on that money. Now, you've got to remember, you only saved 30% when you put it in. Now you're going to pay 40% because you had to cash it all in and it's taxed at death. Now, you cleared $48,600. Now, you still had the mother money invested from the tax refund, and you do have to pay tax on the capital gain. But not a lot. And so you only you end up clearing out of that twenty four thousand, you end up clearing twenty two thousand dollars goes to your estate. So adding them together, your estate would get seventy thousand eight hundred dollars after tax. Which looks great. Okay? You put this money in, you end up the the kids are better off, they still get seven almost seventy one thousand dollars. What if you just had left it in an investment? and you didn't invest it into an RSP, it would also have grown to 81000 
there would have been $31,000 in capital gains because you put 50000 grew to 81000 The tax rate would have been at 16% because capital gains are taxed at 50% of the tax rate. So you're not going to, you're not, and also you're not going to be paying nearly, you're not going to jump into the higher brackets because only half of the capital gain is taxable. So out of that 31000 15500 is added to your income that year. So you end up paying $4,960 in tax. For a nut total to the estate, $76,040 is what your estate receives. So the difference here, which would you rather have? You put the money in RSP, save 30%, but you had to pay 40% when you took the money out. Or would you like to save tax at 30% or not, sorry, save the, don't, don't invest at all. Just leave it invested, but no RSPs and let the money grow. And you just pay the tax upon death, I guess it would be, and to your state. Bottom line, your state is better off by $5,240. That is a lot of money. So I, I'm thinking quite often, and Andy often looks at the big tax, little tax. We've talked about that many times about probate tax and income tax. And to me, this is very short-sighted for this advisor or bank advisor to say, oh, yes, you should put $50,000 in. To me, it didn't make any sense because they're only going to save tax at this 30% tax rate for the bulk of it. And they're the best-case scenario, because they have a pension, they're going to be paying tax at 30%, same bracket, or worse. There's no case in the future Will, the, will there ever be in a better tax rate? Now, in this case, they were married. So if one person passed away, the other person would inherit the money. Well, that, again, sounds all good. But now the person that received it, is they've got a bigger tax problem because now they've got a lot more than 50, this $81,000. And you've got to remember, I've only used this example on 50000 Can you have too much in RSPs? Absolutely. And let's say this person already had a couple hundred thousand dollars in RSPs. Now they'll ne- they'll, they will be struggling to avoid old age security clawback because now their their minimum coming out of a RIF will be far greater than four thousand. Like I said, it would be more like sixteen to twenty thousand dollars a year. Now they're starting to lose their old age security, and there's a very good chance that upon death that they could pay fifty three and a half percent tax. And it's not a state tax. This would be income tax. So paying 53.5% tax, and when they only save 30, to me, doesn't make sense at all. The math doesn't make sense. So at the end of the day, you really want to make sure they, they, the, the person has looked at the whole picture and not just a piece of the picture. And it's not about trying to max out the RSP at the end. To me, they should have been putting money in the RSPs all the way along, maybe 5000 a year, just to use up that 43% tax bracket. But funny enough, the last nine years, these people were also advised that they should only put it in TFSAs. And here they were, they, were, they had a chance to use up about $5,000 every year at the 43% tax bracket. But the advice they had, and they have gone through about five or six different advisors in the past 10 years. That's the other problem. So there's no, no continuity of service. So they're getting a different advisor all the time, having to... You know, regain a relationship, having them to understand their situation, and then they're getting this advice. So the real answer is they should have been putting about 5000 away each year and just using up the 43% tax bracket and never 
have put away $50,000 into an RSP just because they're retiring right now. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call promptly at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Uh, Going to talk about uh, the stock market roller coaster here. How do we yeah. sign up? That's funny. I, uh, you know how some people love roller coasters and some people hate roller coasters. I used to have an aunt every time we would go to um, the Irinfall Fair. She, we would, she and I would go on the roller coaster all the time, and she loved it. But you think I could get my uh, my sisters or my parents onto that thing? No way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was reminded of how I, I was reminding clients about how uh, the stock market is volatile and it's not always positive. And um, it's easy to forget. In fact, I was sitting around at dinner with my uh, kids. We were Zooming the other day, and they were talking about uh, some of the gains that people had made on things like Bitcoin and GameStop and uh, GameStop and uh, various and just other uh, tech stocks in the growth area right now. <clears throat> and uh, for many people, if you haven't lived through a really bad or volatile time period where, or you've lost money, uh, it's easy to get sort of compl- complacent about that, that there's always growth. And in fact, I had a client asking, they were looking to buy a, a building lot and they needed $100,000 in uh, June. And um, their conservative portfolio had actually done really well last year where they were saving towards this goal, but it made 6%. And so they were in our discussion, they said, well, let's just leave it till June and then I'll uh, we'll take it out then because it's about 97000 right now. They figured by June, it'll be over 100. They're all set. And um, <clears throat> so... I reminded them about standard deviation and standard deviation is the volatility in your portfolio. And the best way to think about this is you, you, there's a lot of different statistics, but one of the ones I like the best is what we call, what I call our Lego block uh, chart. And basically if you think about Lego bricks and you stack them up upon each other, what they do is every calendar year that there's a positive year and the cat and the, and the, the columns are either, you know, zero to 10%, 10 to 20%, 20 to 30% on the right side. And those are all green Lego blocks. And on the left side, minus, you know, zero to minus 10, minus 10 to 20, and minus 20 to 30. And those are red Lego blocks. And so you get a vision of, you know, these are the positive years and the negative years. And uh, there was a study done since 1948. The Toronto stock market has had 51 green blocks, 51 positive years, and 22 red blocks, negative years. So if I were to give you uh, um, uh, an offer, Scott, and I said, would you be willing to take a bet on something that wins 70% of the time and loses 30% of the time? Would you take that bet? Sure. It's a pretty good bet, isn't it? Yep, why not? Yeah, you're, always, you're always on odds. The odds are you're going to come out ahead. And that's really what the Toronto stock market has done over, that last, over those last um, 73 years. And in fact, I think it averaged over that time period about 8.9, almost 9% per year. 
And, um, of course, just like a bell curve, we used to think about that curve, look like a bell. Most of the, most of the Lego blocks are stacked right up in that middle area where 0 to 10%. In fact, 19 of the 73 blocks are almost are, are in that 0 to 10 range, so positive. And, um, but basically, you know, the, the, the concept is, and in fact, the strangest one was in 2008, where we saw that that block was minus 33%. So it's way out on the left side of the chart. And one year later, in 2009, way out on the right side of the chart, it went up 35%. So a swing of over 78% in terms of evaluations. And uh, for many people, if they look at their March statement from last year and their March statement this year, they're going to see some of that volatility. Because at its worst, during COVID, the market was down 35% in the stock market. Now, most people's portfolio, because they're balanced, aren't going to be down that much. But you're going to see a big swing over the next course of the next year. And so standard deviation measures risk. And if your portfolio averages 6% and it has a standard deviation of 10%, what you do is you can measure like that bell curve, 66 or two-thirds of the time, your portfolio would be between minus 4% and plus 16% with an average of 6. And two standard deviations measures 98% of the scenarios of, of your investment period. And in that case, you would average uh, as, as low as minus 14% in one year, but as high as plus 26%, still averaging that 6%. So what I want to remind people, and what I told my clients that need their money, let's take the cash now, because you're going to enjoy, even if you get it now and you're a little bit, you know, it's not quite 100000 it's going to be a lot more comforting than when you come to June and suddenly it was down by $5,000 and now you're in a deficit and you can't get it. You might feel a little sad if it continues to go up and yeah, you could have made a bit more, but you know what? It hurts a lot more when it goes down and you have to take that loss. And so um, it's always important just to remind people that markets go down. It's not a straight line. Be prepared that every sort of uh, three years out of 10, you have a negative year, and that's just part of the game. It's boring to hold things for the long term, but that is the way that you build wealth over time, sticking through those negative years and the positive years, the green bricks and the red bricks. And uh, at the end of the day, you will be rewarded. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. We're going to talk about splitting your income, and this is always worthwhile, you're saying. Absolutely. It kind of came across this because I was speaking to a client of mine that has moved to the states, and they were, we're comparing income tax. And in North Carolina, they add the two spouses' incomes together, and they divide by two, basically. They both get the same income level, which totally makes sense. I'm not quite sure. We make it very difficult for us to split our incomes, and because that way you get you know, all the different tax write-offs, both the husband and the, and the wife get the, sim- the exact same write-offs, and you don't go into a higher tax bracket. One may be in a higher bracket, one may be in a lower bracket. So as a family bracket, it would be 
better. It would be the average of the two, which would definitely save money. So I kind of said, okay, well, what would happen if, and again, this is, I'm not being sexist here, but generally speaking, uh, particularly at these ages, I'd say around 65, there's more women that were lower income earners. And the husband was a higher income earner. So let's just say, I'll, I'll make an extreme example here. Let's say, in this case, the wife was earning just the old age security, and she had, she, so that's whatever that is, about $615 a month, and she's getting about $200 a month in Canada Pension Plan because she did different part-time jobs along the way. And that was it. There's $10,000 of income a year. The husband, he also gets the old age security. He gets $1,000 a month in Canada Pension Plan. He's got a great pension, though. He's got an $80,000 per year pension, and he inherited some money, and that inheritance is making $30,000 a year. So his income is 130000 and her income is 10000 So I think, okay, well, the tax on this, she would pay no tax because at $10,000, there's no income tax. At 130000 though, he's 65, he would pay $36,000 in income tax. He would get a pension credit of $418. He would not get an age credit because he makes over the limit of 90-some-odd thousand for the for the age credit, so he doesn't get that. And funny enough, right at, right at $130,000, you lose all your old age security. So there's, there's your $7,380 of old age security is out the window. But the good news, I suppose, is you don't end up paying tax on that old age security, so you do get $3,205 back. Bottom line is their family tax, the old between the two of them, is $40,175. So between them, they make 140000 and they pay $40,000 in tax. You know, it's a lot of tax. At the end of the day, it's still a lot of tax. And who wants to pay 29% tax on their overall income? Now, let's say you're able to split this perfectly, 70000 each. They would both pay 13587 in tax. They'd still get the pension credit of $417 in their pocket. They actually get part of the age credit, $500 each, and there is no old age clawback. So they get their complete old age security. So at the end of the day, they both pay the exact same amount of tax, which is 12670 each, and therefore the overall tax bill is 25340 So this is a savings of just short of $15,000 a year, every year. 15,000. And so the tax bracket in that case, 25 on 140, you're paying 18% overall your average tax rate rather than 29% just because you're able to split your income perfectly. Now, I'm not saying that's possible in every situation, but that is the goal. And so you're saving 15,000. That's a lot of money in, in any given day. But what about the fact that you're, a 65-year-old on average will live to at least 85? That's 20 years. So that's going to save you $300,000 in income tax over 20 years. Now, you say, okay, that's a lot of money, but also that's money that you could have invested or not had to touch your other investments as much. So in reality, if you invested that money, that tax savings every year, that works out to about a half a million dollars because you now have that money that you can either spend and you don't touch your other investments as much, so they allow those, those monies to grow more. 
So tax is a huge part of a financial plan. Do not take it lightly. If you just say it just you know, quickly, well, I paid an extra 15 grand in tax. Yeah, okay, that's bad enough. But you start to work it out of what does the real result mean. And over 20 years, that's, in this case, is a half a million dollars. So some of the common mistakes I find in income splitting is splitting Canada pension plan. That one there you cannot do on your tax return. We, um, you have to actually go to Service Canada and apply for the split, and they will adjust it depending on how long you've been married, and you need your marriage certificate. Perfect world, of course, that would be split rate in half. Uh, splitting your pension income is very important. That's done at the income tax level, and your accountant will do that. And other things such as a spousal RSP and a one plus one on your investments where you can have all your investment income put into your spouse's name and let it grow there. There's lots of ways to split income. Make sure you talk to your financial planner to see how close they can to splitting your income perfectly equal. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website where you can listen to old archive shows, as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thanks, Thanks, Scott. Scott. Thanks, Don. Talk to you next week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.